This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, very soon we'll get the latest on the powerful Typhoon Mawa that crashed Guam last night. And a new project launched by National Geographic hopes to map the unknown parts of the Pacific Ocean. We're always looking for new species. A lot of the deep sea has never been explored in many of these places. And in New Caledonia, indigenous Kanak groups want more authority on the nickel mined from their land. Make sure that they are connected with the local community. And all that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. First, though, residents of Guam have endured a harrowing night of storms, heavy rain and thrashing winds after the eye of a powerful typhoon Mawa swept over the island last night. Residents were ordered into shelters on Tuesday night and they fear what they will wake up to today. With trees and cars pushed over by winds traveling at more than 220 kilometers per hour. For more, we're joined now by Landon Idlet, who's a warning coordination meteorologist at the U.S. National Weather Service in Guam. Good morning to you, Landon, and thank you so much for joining us on Pacific Beat. Uh, so much. Uh, good morning to you as well, and it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Well, well tell us how it is there in Guam at the moment. What's the situation like? Uh, right now, it's it's kind of a, a, a ghastly quiet. We're kind of in a lull waiting for the sun to rise up very shortly. Um, I very much expect a grisly scene uh, across the island. I've been forecasting and communicating to the folks for several days that what we see going into shelters Tuesday night will be a dramatically altered landscape come Thursday morning. And I think that's very much at hand as the sun rises. It's going to be a a very devastating scene uh, based on preliminary reports I'm getting from people all over the island. It's going to be bad. Mm. Well, that's very worrying to hear, Landon. I mean, what are the reports you are hearing from people? I understand the storm passed over the night. Is that right? Do you have any understanding of what was damaged? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, We did have that storm make its very slow approach to Guam. Mm. It passed just north of the island's. We're trying to confirm reports of a an eye passage over Anderson Air Force Base in the far northern part of the islands. Uh, that may have occurred around 9.45 p.m. till 10.30 p.m. We might have been on the very south side of that eye with the, the bulk of that eye passing through the Rota Channel, which is the, the channel of water between Guam and the island of Rota to our north. Um, we're trying to confirm those reports, but we had peak conditions for nearly a six to eight hour period across the island oh. with relentless rains, thrashing winds and uh, vivid lightning for a period of time, uh, causing all kinds of problems. And so the reports, including damage to several of our, our major hotels uh, inside and outside of the structures, uh, the hospitals, two of our main hospitals have uh, sustained some significant damage. The, the Guam International Airport, I'm seeing videos come through in several WhatsApp circles, um, flooding of the airport. So this is just the beginning. Um, this is going to be a, a very revealing scene in the next half hour to hour. I'm waiting for a call with the governor of Guam as she and her team are about to set out. Um, we're going to be touching base very shortly um, to discuss uh, their needs, their concerns, and the ongoing uh, weather threats and hazards 
across the island this morning. And so we're still near tropical storm force conditions across the island. This has taken its time to get out of the region uh, so that people can get out and about and start picking up the pieces um, as soon as they can. So, so is, does the threat remain? Is, so the, um, the storm hasn't quite completely complete, completed its passage out of the area? That's correct. So this this typhoon has been intensifying overnight. It is uh, getting another eye. It's starting to show a nice, well-formed eye. Uh, is at least looks like it's about 60 miles uh, away from Guam to the west at this time. So it is gaining distance away from us, which is great news. But it's that expanded wind field of tropical storm force winds that extend outward from the center of this typhoon that is still keeping showers and gusty winds over the island. Oh dear, and you said 68 hours that it was, you know, it was the slow moving storm as it passed over Guam. Um, have you had any reports of, of injuries or a- any people hurt from this? I've had only one report and that was surrounding a senior, uh, senior citizen home. Uh, I believe the, the report was that typhoon shutters were ripped off of much of the building and some debris hit one of the residents. Uh, that is not yet confirmed, but that's the only report of injuries that I've received at this time. Uh, this will be greatly uh, increasing in frequency, I'm sure, throughout the day as people are picking up the pieces and communications start rolling. Right now, our telecommunications, they have taken a hit. Uh, phone service, cell service is very limited and spotty. I'm actually on Wi-Fi here at the National Weather Service office. so. Fortunately, we still have communications. We'll probably be going through a Facebook Live broadcast on U.S. National Weather Service Guam sometime in the 7 o'clock hour to provide the latest information on Typhoon Mawar. And that's going to be probably in about another hour, hour and a half. We're going to be going Facebook Live to provide those latest details as people are starting to emerge and step outside their doors to a, a whole different landscape. Mm. Yes, that's important um, news for listeners. If they do want to tune in and find out the latest in an hour, Landon, um, you'll be there updating people. W- what are your priorities now? It's just the start of the day there in Guam. Um, do you Can you foresee what, what your day might look like? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a tricky one. I, I really want to go home and check my house. I, I don't uh. know what I'm going home to. I already had water on some of my floors Tuesday evening as I prepared my place at the very last minute. Um, so I'm terrified what I'm going to be going home to. Uh, right now, my priority is my staff here. Uh, we've been here since Tuesday evening, rotating shifts, rotating naps so that we can keep. Oh, dear. We might have just. Um, but I'm about to shut the office down so that we can prioritize our needs, our physical, emotional and mental needs. Yes, that's understandable. And and you did cut out for a second, Landon, and um, I do understand that communications are tough. We really, really appreciate you speaking to us um, during this difficult time. Um, now, do you know, Is it has it been the whole, all communities that have been affected there in Guam? Is there, are there any people who've been most affected by the storms that you expect um, need extra help? It's tough to say right now, but I believe looking at the satellite animation of the worst conditions, I think uh, central and northern Guam took the, the worst beating uh, with the heavy rain bands that really uh, formed over the island beyond or after 8 o'clock p.m. that went on till midnight. It was just a relentless beating of this heavy rain band and the strong typhoon force winds that just went relentlessly. Southern Guam, they took a, a pretty good hit as well, but I'm hoping they might have been spared a little bit 
better than central northern parts because they are a little bit farther from the more improved infrastructure of uh, central Guam. Uh, those reports will be forthcoming, but a lot of roads are impassable. It's going to be uh, a while before we get uh, people able to travel around the island, but the entirety of Guam took a severe beating overnight. And Landon, you did mention, I mean, you just mentioned the roads there earlier. You mentioned that hospitals are also affected, airports as well. Are you worried about relief efforts going forward? Um, I'm not too concerned about that. I know this is something that we plan for. This is something we exercise for as an island. We work with our stakeholders every year. That's inclusive of Homeland Security, uh, the Department of Defense, our military bases, uh, many GovGuam agencies, the Homeland Security, FEMA, uh, we were very forward-leaning with this storm on Friday when we called up the first uh, heavy weather briefs on Friday afternoon. And I said, this is something we have to take very seriously. And so we need to lean forward, especially with a weekend upon us. The government of Guam did exactly that. And I think that put us in a very, very good posture to weather whatever this storm does to us. Um, so FEMA is on hand. They sent out teams over here from the states uh, in advance of the storm. And the coordination and the planning and the preparedness was well in place before this thing ever arised. And I think it was that forward leaning, the planning and preparedness that is going to be our saving grace for this uh, storm event. A lot of prayers are being said about this. Uh, I think we dodged a bullet with all said and done. Mm -hmm. I think we dodged a bullet with this one. Um, as bad as it is, uh, we were spared the worst, I think. Oh, well, fingers crossed that that does hold true. I, I know you've got a um, yes busy day surveying the damage today, Landon. Um, and just finally, has Guam faced typhoons, um, big storms like this before? Um, or, or, or I've been hearing that this is the worst one in, in about a decade. Can you give us some um, context here? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. And when this thing went super typhoon uh, briefly on, I think it was Tuesday, it was a super typhoon status as it was making its approach to Guam, um, we were looking at a very dire situation, possibly the worst typhoon in recorded history that goes back to Typhoon Karen that struck Guam in the 1960s. Uh, the second worst typhoon to strike Guam was Typhoon Pansanwa in December of 2002. We were looking to exceed those conditions if we were having a super typhoon uh, strike Guam directly. Fortunately, it lost some intensity uh, Tuesday night into Wednesday in a it also shifted a little bit farther north, clipping the northern part of Guam. So, again, we dodged a significant bullet uh, that things did not proceed with a super typhoon Category 5 storm striking us directly. Uh, this was a Category 4, but that's not going to be much relief to people. So this is probably this will likely be the worst typhoon we've had in 20 years, all the way back since 2002's Typhoon Pansanwa in December of that year. We've had other typhoons in recent years, uh, 2000. 18 typhoon main cut uh, that was not so bad also may 15th 2015 typhoon dolphin that struck in northern guam and that had that did not compare to the storm by any means uh, this storm exceeds both 2018 and 2015 Oh, well, um, hopefully that preparation that you've done, Landon, um, it has, has, has worked and people are safe. And all the best as you um, pick up the pieces today. And, and yes, hopefully the damage isn't, isn't as bad as, as you might expect. But all the very best. Thank you so much for speaking to us yes. this morning. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure speaking to you. And uh, the prayers are very much appreciated for the island of Guam.
Yes, we'll be praying for you across the Pacific. And um, as Aunt Landon mentioned earlier, you can tune in to the Guam um, Weather Service on Facebook. They'll be going live, he said, in about um, 45 minutes to an hour um, to provide the latest update there. Um, that was Landon Idlet. He's the warning, warning coordination meteorologist at the U.S. National Weather Service in Guam. He's just about to advise the governor of Guam about um, what to do in the in the wake of this uh Typhoon Mawa, um, which swept over Guam last night. Um, we're hearing reports of, of damage, um, fallen trees, cars. Landon was saying hospitals might be damaged, including airports um, and and roads. So uh, quite a lot um, of, of expected damage there. Uh, as I said, thoughts and prayers with the people of Guam today. Pacific Beat. Now, National Geographic has launched an unprecedented five-year expedition into the Pacific using a cutting-edge technology. The pristine seas expedition has promised the discovery of new species and hopes to create marine protected areas. And the work may also have implications for future and, con- and for the future of contentious deep-sea mining proposals in the Pacific. Cooper Williams with this report. The Pacific is home to some of the world's deepest oceans and last pristine coral reefs, but much of it remains a mystery to science. A five-year National Geographic exploration called Pristine Seas wants to uncover the unknown by studying everything from microscopic algae to the largest sharks and whales. So we're embarking on this epic journey that's unprecedented in scope and scale. Some of these places that we've been have have little to no data on on them at all. We're always looking for new species. A lot of the deep sea has never been explored in many of these places. Alan Friedlander is the chief scientist for the National Geographic Pristine Seas Expedition. He says it is the first of its kind. Starting next week, we'll travel to the Southern Line Islands of Kiribati, followed by Tonga Reva in the Cook Islands, then on to Niue between Tonga and the Cooks, then on to the Marshall Islands later on in the year and finishing up at the Federated States of Micronesia. But why the Pacific? Mr. Friedlander says there's lots to learn from its marine environments to its history. There's a lot of lessons to be learned there about our ability to adapt globally in the Anthropocene. Pacific Islanders pretty much invented marine conservation. Um, You know, many of the strategies we have today, closed areas, closed seasons, size limits, all those, you know, limited entry, they were all developed millennia ago by people of, of Oceania. Along the way, the expedition hopes to partner with Pacific governments, NGOs and scientists and use the knowledge gained to create marine protected areas. Enrique Sala is the founder of Pristine Seas and says the expedition will use cutting-edge technology specifically designed for deep-sea exploration. We have these cameras developed at the National Geographic um, Exploration Lab that allows us to go as deep as 6,000 metres. And they go down, they are filming there for hours, and then they come back to the surface. So that's a pretty cheap way to explore the deep sea, of which we know very, very, very little. Every time we go to an area and drop our cameras or go down with a submarine where there have been no scientific studies before. Every single time we find new species, every single time we discover things. One of the issues the expedition will investigate is deep sea mining, a contentious issue in the region. Mr. Sala says the special cameras will be used to get a better picture of life at the depths where mining would take place. 
that deep sea mining is a, is a serious threat to that rich and fragile marine life of the depths. And we believe that we should know more. We should, the world should not rush to mine the deep sea until we know enough um, about this, this part of the world, the most unknown part of the world, the last frontier, but also um, until we know that the mining operations would be actually um, harmless to the marine environment, which right now uh, they don't seem to be. There are countries like France and Costa Rica and others that are asking for a moratorium of deep sea mining until we know more, until we can make sure that any operation will not harm marine life that has been there for many thousands of years and that can be destroyed with a single pass of a big machine. Palau's Minister for Environment Stephen Victor shares those concerns. He welcomes the expedition and hopes it will put a halt to deep sea mining in the Pacific. We hope that this expedition continue to also provide a glimpse into the depth of the ocean that oftentimes we have very little appreciation to because we don't know what's there. And we tend to believe that what we do in the depth of the ocean, we can minimize the impact. But if I have said in other dialogue that uh, Palau strongly uh, believe in banning of putting a moratorium on deep sea mining because there's not enough that we know about what's in the deep sea and the impact of deep sea mining would have on our already impacted marine ecosystem. Minister Victor would like to see real benefits for Pacific communities that come from this expedition. He says if marine protected areas are established, they'll need to be well thought out. How do we balance the socioeconomic as well as the biodiversity needs of the people who are dependent on, on these uh, resources. And therefore, that we ensure that uh, the strategies and the protection we put in place are long-lasting and durable. For Pacific communities, this expedition comes at a time of great uncertainty, with the impacts of climate change becoming increasingly apparent. Minister Victor says the future of ocean sustainability is a global responsibility. We are an ocean people and culture. The main engines of our economy are marine-based tourism and fisheries. We as Pacific Islanders have taken that responsibility to take care of the ocean, and we call on the rest of the world to share that responsibility with us. And I hope that this global expedition will shine more light on that and will get more ocean advocates and more nations to continue to see the important role that the ocean has in helping mitigate impact of uh, climate change. For Chief Scientist Mr Friedlander, the expedition comes at a critical time and he believes that the Pacific may hold lessons for the future and climate mitigation and adaptation. The timing of this work couldn't be more urgent given the growing threats that are currently facing our planet. This is a unique opportunity to support local conservation efforts in Palau and elsewhere in a region with some of the last pristine coral reef left on Earth, and also a region with a long history of marine conservation. So really, it's about, you know, learning from the past with the hope of helping to preserve the future. The Pristine Seas expedition is due to wrap up in 2028. National Geographic says it will be publishing peer-reviewed scientific studies throughout the expedition, and cinematographers will be documenting their discoveries. And that was Cooper Williams with that report. Pacific Beat. 
You are listening to Pacific Beach this Thursday morning. New Caledonia is home to some of the largest nickel deposits in the world and could play a pivotal role in powering the world's fleet of electric vehicles. But Indigenous Kanak unions want mining investors to respect the wishes of traditional owners and responsibly look after the environment. Yasmin Wright-Gittens in Numia with more. As the world's fourth largest supplier of nickel, New Caledonia holds claim over the supply of rare minerals used in the production of batteries for electric vehicles. It's a standing acknowledged by Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong during a recent visit. New Caledonia's nickel is a critical mineral for the production of electric vehicle batteries. And we are a world leader in some of the green technologies used to transform nickel into electric vehicle batteries. And I know of at least two Australian companies interested in forming partnerships with New Caledonia in this sector. One of these companies is Queensland Pacific Metals. The company recently signed an agreement to purchase nickel from Mai Kuei Mines and needs 1.6 million tonnes worth to supply their project. The company's director in New Caledonia, Corinne Bouffnois, says rare earth minerals were valuable because of their use in stainless steel production. Well, we can see that the, uh, the uh, stainless steel market is still quite uh, important in the world, but the, the progress of the, uh, the EV market with uh, recent uh, announcement of all the governments, or main, the main ones, uh, uh, like in Australia, if you want to go to the climate uh, transition uh, uh, pillar of uh, the Australian government, you have to uh, increase the uh, um, increase the renewable, uh, say, uh, energy, and uh, the EV market, uh, the electric vehicle market, it's part of it. Ms. Bouvnois says the quality of New Caledonia's minerals and its strict standards on social and environmental governance are a big attraction for investors. Her company is also working with the Australian government on a training exchange program. Oh, in QBM, it's not just the oil supply, it's also working with the communities. So we are already thinking of uh, bringing people to Australia, train them and then send them back to New Caledonia. So uh, some kind of exchange like that. It's going to create more jobs for sure, more investments, a better balance in between Australia and, uh, and New Caledonia for sure. Rebalancing the trades, uh, that would be part of it for sure. The mining industry unions say it's critical that governments use the opportunity to secure the territory's economic future. But it won't be an easy task, given the controversial nature of mining in New Caledonia and its implications on political stability and the independence movement. Leonard Wametu is with the Federation of Mines, Quarries and Metallurgy, a mining union. He says the priority for the Kanak community is to increase local ownership of the mines. At the moment, the way we are working is mostly imposed on us. But we want to have a say in how the mines will be run in the future. See, the local ownership, the local participation, the community participation in running the mines are very important to us. Just like the Aborigines, we are part of the land and the land is our mother. So if tomorrow uh, somebody wants to invest here, take that into account. Antonio Nuadu, who's also with the union, says there are customary procedures in New Caledonia that hold just as much importance as the laws. When coming here, we have to be aware that there are people on the ground. You have to make sure that you are connected by the investor and make sure that they are connected with the local people, community, 
where the mind is, uh, is exists. So these are the three main things. Uh, otherwise, uh, what is important to, to, to note is that when you come to those, uh, there are customary uh, procedures to follow. And they are just like any other, like the Nukus right or any other law that are applied by the French here, must also looking into respecting the customary landowners, dealing with them and uh, doing proper. Gabriel Ben Simon represents Prony Resources, a majority locally owned company that has transitioned to mining for EV production. Growth of nickel demand will be uh, uh, above 6%, but it estimates also that uh, the growth of the offer will be higher than 7%, which makes things complicated if uh, the demand really uh, increased uh, this rate. Uh, in New Caledonia, we, uh, we decide to, to produce the nickel uh, with a lot of uh, environmental uh, respect and, uh, and constraint that uh, constraint the industrial to produce the right way and uh, there's this willingness so i would say the increase of growth of offer of nickel is uh, high so more than seven percent but the increase of nickel with uh, a sustainable way to produce is not so high so that's really our our competitive advantage we we are working on uh, to be a responsible producer of nickel. Mr. Ben Simon says that the majority local ownership in Prony Resources is key to their social responsibility in New Caledonia. We are really proud about our um, our structure. Uh, I will say um, our shareholders' structure is uh, is quite unique. Uh, we've got fifty one percent of uh, local interest which are split uh, in 30% in the, um, uh, through the province, 12% are owned by the employees themselves, and uh, 9% uh, by the, the communities and the local population. We're really working to, to make it a success. After all the political consideration, wow. our job is to add value to nickel in New Caledonia. That is Gabrielle Ben-Simon from Aproni Resources there in New Caledonia, ending that report by Yasmin Wright-Gittens. In the Fale is a brand new music show on ABC Radio Australia, hosted by me, Paola Tukefu. I'll be spinning my favourite tunes from dancehall to disco, calypso to country, reggae to roots, and hip-hop to house music, from across the era to keep the kids and the aunties happy. If it has a pumping groove, I'll be bringing it to you to bump you into the weekend. In the Friday, Fridays at 2pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Now, it's all, as always, it's that time on Pacific Beat where we find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, we're joined by Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning to you, Priyanka. Now, um, this is a story I'm following, actually, and um, should have a, um, you know, hopefully a bit more of an in-depth look at it next week. But um, Vanuatu is rolling out a new digital cash transfer system. Tell us all about it, Kyle. Yes. So uh, over 1,000 households and close to 90 vendors uh, have been registered so far 
on uh, Ambrum, the island of Ambrum, and that's according to the Vanuatu Daily Post. And they'll basically get a digital cash transfer via blockchain technology. Uh, now, for a bit of background, this is a government initiative uh, that provides cash instead of food deliveries to cyclone-affected people. And the idea is that it's a more efficient way uh, to give power to people to manage their own recovery, uh, and the plan is to roll it out right across Vanuatu. Yes, yeah, it's a, it's very interesting. It's um, As you said, it uses blockchain technology, so it's not actually cash as we'd think of, like the physical cash that gets sent to people, um, but um, they're supposed to use an app, um, connect through the internet and get, um, I guess, digital money or, or digital tokens that they can use at, at nearby shops. So it's it's quite interesting, quite cutting edge, quite controversial as well. Mm-hmm. Not everyone thinks it's the best way to deliver aid. Um, but yeah, very, very interesting. Do you know if it's just Amber and for now, Kyle? Yeah, it looks like it. However, Minister for Finance, John Salong, says uh, mass registration will be conducted on Tana and Ifate after an evaluation following this uh, initial registration registration period on Ambrum. Um, and look, while registrations have been high, I think it would be good to speak to a, to a resident about this because like you said, it is it is very complicated. We know the government loves it, but to be honest, I, I barely know what blockchain technology <laughs> is. So yeah. Yes. Well, indeed, like I said, I am I'm looking into it and speaking to people on the ground um, about what they think uh, of blockchain technology and receiving cash or money, like using that technology. Um, but yeah, very, very interesting. You know, there, there's a lot of hype around cryptocurrency, uh, which mm. uses blockchain technology as well. Um, as you probably know, Kyle, I don't know if you've, you've bought can't, crypto yourself. Can't say I'm a crypto bro, Priyanka. No, you're not a crypto bro. <laughs> but there are a lot of fans and there are a lot of people who think this technology will revolutionize banking systems and and um, really the whole world. Um, you know, they, they claim that blockchain can be used for any any sort of transaction, um, you know, we'll wait to see it. A lot of lot of promises claimed, and um, that those those. Um I guess high promises haven't quite been delivered yet, but maybe maybe Vanuatu has the key. So, yeah, we'll see what happens with this project, and if people will certainly. I mean, obviously, after a cyclone hits, which is more when I believe these cyclone these cash transfers are supposed to happen, um, we'll see if 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 it actually does come into action and helps some people out during that difficult time. I'll have to uh, I'll have to catch up. As of as of <laughs> right up until now, I've been uh, old school banks and bricks and mortar. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I no, I no longer use cash. Do you use cash still? Carl? Actually, no, I don't use cash. Yeah, it's oh, been a long time since I've had since I've had cash on me, which <laughs> is great. So when Next I do, I forget blockchain. about it. It's always a great surprise when you find it. <laughs> indeed. Um, now another great surprise is that Walt Disney Studios are putting out a casting call for a Pacific Island girl that they want to play Moana in a live-action version of the film. We heard about that live-action version of Moana happening, I think, a month ago or two ago Mm -hmm. where where The Rock said he'd be producing it. Um, But tell us more about this casting call, Carl. Yeah, so the studio is looking for a 16-year-old to uh, to play the heroic character and they want to give the opportunity to as many young women of Pacific Island heritage as they can. So I actually found this story in the Solomon Island Times, but but I I imagine this has been reported, yeah, absolutely everywhere. Um, The studio says no acting experience is required uh, and the open casting call is for everyone that fits the character description of Moana, so probably someone with that curious and adventurous spirit. And, uh, and the studio is asking anyone who is interested to basically submit a name, a photo and a location to, uh, to the studio. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I mean, anyone listening, if you fit the bill, 16-year-old or look 16-year-old maybe, girl, Moana... 
for um, of no acting experience required. Um, yeah, it's it's really lovely that they're I guess making the attempt. It seems to um, get someone from the islands to play such an iconic um, Pacific Islander character. It is great. It's a fantastic movie too. It's definitely it's it's one of yeah it's it's on the top end of the the Disney recent Disney films. I, I reckon. Yes, and and they did make take a lot of care to actually consult with Pacific Islanders with community leaders to make sure what they're telling. Um, is accurate and, um, you know, culturally sensitive, all that kind of stuff, which is, again, rare to see in a film, particularly a big studio like Disney doing it. So let's hope they can pull it off again with this um, live-action version. We, we, we will see. I'm sure we'll be lining up for tickets. For the first, one now. <laughs> first one's there. Um, now to some sporting news, Kyle. The OFC Champions League semi-finals took place yesterday. What got through? Yeah, so it's going to be an Auckland City and Suva FC final after both clubs scraped through uh, in, in their semi-final matches yesterday. Really entertaining affair in both games, uh, particularly Auckland against the uh, hometown heroes, Ifira Blackbird, who were sadly beaten via a uh, penalty shootout. So, yeah, look, they really they really took the defending champs all the way to the brink. They actually led for much of the match, and it looked... Oh for a second there, like an unbelievable upset victory uh, was going to take place. Unfortunately, that didn't come to pass. They only played for 10 men for the final 16 minutes of regulation. They did manage to uh, to grit through that period. However, uh, New Zealand, oh, sorry, Auckland were managed to, uh, to find an equaliser and then ultimately forced to shoot out and beat them 5-4. So, God, you couldn't have come any closer to victory uh, if you were the Blackbird. Yeah, and you you are a massive if you're a Blackbird fan, am I am I right? Or yeah, you were gunning for them? I was gunning for them. the hometown team. It was the first time they were there. Um, I know they love their soccer in Vanuatu. You can just tell it's 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 really you know it's really close. embedded in the culture. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I still think you know the fans absolutely would have got their money's worth. I, yep. I you know I saw scenes of the match yesterday. There would have been you know five thousand people um, oh, wow. there as well. So no, look, fantastic to see. I hope they I hope to see them back there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, next time for the win. Um, and how did Suvas Sego Carl? Yeah, that was a really entertaining uh, affair as well. I believe um, Ifira actually played the curtain raiser, so that would have been a hard game to live up to. But it was a bit of a goal scoring frenzy. Four uh, two, uh, they beat the Tahiti champs ASPRA. Oh wow! Um, they as well played the last twenty minutes with only ten men uh, on the park, but still managed two goals during that time to uh, to yeah springboard them into the final. So, so Auckland and Suva. Auckland and Suva. Yeah, and when's that happening next week? That will be yeah Thursday today. I don't actually know the exact day, but I imagine that'll be on the weekend. Yeah, okay. Probably Saturday. All right. Exciting stuff. Exciting um, weekend of sports uh, ahead. Thank you, Carl, for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. Pacific Beat. A vicious parasitic mite is causing havoc to bees around the world, including in the Pacific. And now the region's budding beekeeping industry wants to do something about it. With about 200 beekeepers from several Pacific countries meeting in Fiji this week for the first time, the varroa mite and other issues will be on the agenda. To find out more, we're joined now by Dr. Cooper Shooten, ACR Project Lead from Southern Cross University. Good morning to you, Cooper. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, welcome to the show. Um, so I understand the, this mite, this uh, varroa mite, will be a topic of discussion at this upcoming cong- congress. Can you tell us about the mite, why it's a concern to Pacific beekeepers? Yeah, absolutely. So varroa, varroa mites are one of the leading causes of colony losses globally. Um, and we see that throughout Australia and New Zealand, America and other places. But often the, the Pacific is left behind in some of these conversations. They've got varroa mites. And in some countries, they've even got other mites as well. So 
they basically are killing bees and it's causing their colonies to die. And that means the families are impacted because they don't have a lot of honey income. And how big is the beekeeping community in the Pacific? Because it's fairly new, is that right, Cooper? Yeah, I mean, it is to some extent. It's different for many other countries. So the Pacific Bee Congress, you've got, you know, beekeepers from 13 different countries. And so it's super different in different areas. You've got some industries that are really thriving. They've got strong associations and they've got, you know, lots of training happening. and They've got good honey production. But other countries uh, throughout the Pacific, you know, they, they have had some good industries in the past, but over the, you know, in the past two decades, you've really seen a decline in the number of managed bees and also the number of beekeepers and honey production. They're really just hanging in there with a few beehives left. Oh, wow. And is, is that a cause because of, of this mite? Are there other issues causing this um, reduction in production? Yeah, so variety mite is obviously a huge problem, but um, predominantly climate change is a really big problem. I haven't met one beekeeper here that's not saying that, you know, they're having problems with, you know, unpredictability of the rainfall events and mm-hmm. increasing rain washes nectar away and that sort of thing that makes it more difficult to um, to know how to manage your bees. And we've also got new and emerging pests and diseases. So uh, attrition is a chronic problem amongst beekeeping adopters and colony losses are high and there's a lot of room for growth in production. Oh, interesting. And because do do these mites spread from one bee to another? I mean, how does how does a bee catch a mite? This is a good question. I mean, they're pretty nimble little things when you look at them. <laughs> they're only the size of a sesame seed, but uh, in comparison to their host, they're one of the largest ectoparasitic mites relative to their host in the world, right? It'd be like you and me having a dinner plate sized tick on us, which is a <laughs> lot of fun for bees. So they can. Uh, they can jump off bees onto flowers and then another bee comes along and jumps on. But the main reason that causes them to spread around is humans. It's usually people and beekeepers moving beekeeping equipment around. Oh, interesting. Well, now you've brought all the beekeepers in the Pacific or a whole lot of them um, yeah, to, to this congress in Fiji. Well, I don't know if you've brought them, Cooper, but it, they have been brought there. <laughs> um, but um, So, so what, is, what is this um, congress all about? I believe it's the first of its kind for the Pacific. Yeah, so the Congress is bringing together about 200 beekeepers from 12 different Pacific Island countries together to learn, network and strengthen beekeeping industry skills and knowledge and partnerships in the region and really trying to build that Pacific beekeeping community. And usually when you go to conferences, it's just a big talk fest and you reflect on the past week about how much sleep you caught up with. (laughs) But uh, here we're really doing, there's lots of presentations around different country profiles, but we're making it very practical. We've got lots of workshops in queen bee breeding and value-added products to make candles and lip balms and body lotions and things like that, and making wax foundation, repairing equipment, and being able to practically monitor and manage for mites, for example, like Barola, like we were just chatting about. Mm, because bees are very important for, you know, not just the honey that we, we like to collect and eat, but they're, they're also important for the, for the larger um, ecology. Is that, is that right, Cooper? Yeah, absolutely. For ecology and then for the economy. I mean, you're right. When most people think about bees, they just think about honey. But bees have so much more to offer than just honey. They play such a critical role in providing food for us, about a third of the world's crops. And so they're really important in terms of food and nutrition security. They produce lots of other products. It's not just, you know, it's not just honey. They and things like that and you can value add to those to produce lots of different products and you don't have to own land to be a beekeeper it doesn't have to necessarily take a lot of time um, and it's a really stable food product so what we're seeing in the research is showing that in areas where people don't have access to financial services they're really selling their honey in times of financial need 
Oh, wow. And, and so are there, because I know, um, you know, when we talk about honey, at least we do, um, there's, there's so many variations depending on where the bees are, what they're, what they're eating, what they're digesting and, um, and things like that. And there are also bees that don't produce honey. Are there, are there sort of Pacific bees or are most of the bees that are, um, beekeepers keep in the Pacific sort of imported in and taken from other places? That's a, that's a really, really good question. So throughout the Pacific, you don't have any native honeybees. When you go where the Wallace line is, it's the imaginary line just near Longbok in Indonesia. When you go west of that, there's like nine different species of honeybees. Mm. Um, but when you go sort of east of that and into, you know, Australia, Papua New Guinea and Solomons and across the Pacific, there are no native honeybees specifically. So they've been introduced in the past, often to pollinate coconut crops and things like that. But that doesn't mean there are no bees there. We've got, you know, when most people say bees, they just think about the honeybee, yeah. which is only one species of 20,000 different species that we have in the world and they're really important to the environment and ecosystem services and they're also really beautiful little bugs that's for sure. <laughs> uh, but when we talk about beekeepers are we generally t- talking about the honey keep the honeybees there? Yes, yes, absolutely. So Apis mellifera was originally uh, brought in missionaries in about the 1990s, but it wasn't until about the 1960s where we really seen a growth uh, in beekeeping uh, industries across the Pacific. And it's, um, yeah, it was really productive for quite a long time in the golden era there in the 1960s, 70s, 80s and 90s. There was a lot of production. And even some countries in PNG, Solomons, uh, Fiji, for example, at that time, back in the, the 90s, were exporting honey at that point. Oh, wow. Wow. So quite, quite a longstanding. I thought it was something new, but it seems like beekeeping has been around for quite some, some decades in the Pacific. Um, if you are just tuning into Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia, we're joined by Dr. Cooper Shooten. He's an ACR project leader, leader from Southern Cross University. And we're talking about this bee congress, this beekeeping congress that's happening in Fiji this week for the first time, bringing, um, beekeepers, I think you said 13 Pacific countries, Cooper, um, together. And, um, one topic of discussion is this parasitic mite, the varroa mite um, wreaking havoc on on bee populations around the world. Um, I mean, are you hoping to sort of discuss the the impact of this mite on on different um, bee colonies around the Pacific, share stories, potentially find a solution, Cooper? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been we've been doing research to try to identify methods to be able to better, you know, identify, monitor and manage these pests and diseases. And we've got to keep in mind that it's not just one bug. You know, there are six different species of varroa mites. Oh. There's two of them that we know of that reproduce on the honeybees that we know. Um, and there's also lots of other things going on. I mean, you could you could imagine if you take the analogy of a, of a mozzie, how bad is a mosquito? in comparison to how bad is a mosquito that has malaria in it, right? So Mm. viruses are a really big problem um, that are associated with having these mites because the mites are not just feeding on the baby bees and then making them deformed when they grow up, but they're also spreading viruses. Oh, wow. So it's also important. I mean, is it viruses that can hurt other animals, that can hurt humans as well? Uh, no, no, okay. they won't hurt humans, which is which is which is good. But generally speaking, when we're thinking about mites, a lot of people think that they're just biting the baby bees, but they're really spreading and activating and, and exacerbating these viral infections, and they cause physiological deformities, obviously, and that you know reduces the population over time, and the, the bees just don't live very long. The the mites they feed on the uh, the fat body tissue of a honeybee, right? And that insects don't have a liver. So it means that they're, they're really feeding on the, the liver of the bee and so they've got to reduce tolerance, different pesticides in the environment as well and diminished immune response as a result. Oh gosh, well I'm really feeling for the for these honeybeans right now. Cooper, do you, do you keep um, bees yourself? Are you a beekeeper yourself? 
Yes, I am. You, you have to practice what you preach. I, originally, uh, when I was in high school, I was working for a commercial beekeeping operation. We were managing 5,000 uh, organic certified hives in northern New South Wales. But I um, I now just run about 50 bees. I sell some nukes and some queens and things like that. But I think it's just really important. It makes it, you know, relatable when I'm here and working with the beekeepers that I'm out there, you know, sweating and making honey and, you know, just doing things very practically. We try to make our research very applied to inform management decisions so the beekeepers have got yeah, more info to to make good decisions that are going to increase the productivity for their farms. Well, I know, Kupi, that you, you want more um, people to, to care for the bees and perhaps become beekeepers themselves, but it sounds like they have a top, tough job in the Pacific with climate change and, and, uh, and this varroa mite uh, damaging uh, colonies. What's, what's your best pitch or, or why, why do you think people perhaps who are listening should get involved in, in beekeeping? Oh, I think one of the main reasons, because, you know, arguably it's one of the most mutualistic forms of agriculture. You know, you've got a lot of beekeepers out there that have an incentive to protect the environment around them because their their bottom line comes from the trees that are around them, right? So um, being able to generate income without exacerbating environmental degradation is something that, you know, I'm sure we're all very passionate about. Um, But in saying that, beekeeping is not for everyone, and that's something that that needs to be, you know, held. We can't just assume just because someone lives in a developing country and they need, you know, different forms of income that all of a sudden they're going to want to dive into bees. And uh, <laughs> a lot of the work that we're doing is demonstrating that, you know, not all beekeeping programs are working. In fact, we're actually having programs that are not helping people. And so we're really trying to do research to better understand the process, uh, how we can better implement beekeeping for development programs to ensure that they're sustainable over time and that, you know, we're not just uh, – it's like the analogy of feeding someone a fish rather than giving them a fishing rod. We really need to hand over the hive tool in terms of, you know, research development and industry development capabilities. Yes, and I'm sure that Congress is, is all about that. Yes, no one wants to dive into bees uh, unprepared, isn't it, Cooper? Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for your time this morning uh, on Pacific Beat. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Don't know much about beekeeping, but um, yeah, fascinated to learn. So thank you, Cooper. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. That was Dr. Cooper Shooten, ACR Project Leader, talking about that first of its kind, Bee Com- Congress, bringing together beekeepers across the Pacific in Fiji. Join me, Rick Howe, on Island Music for the finest in ska, rocksteady, roots, dub, sizzling dancehall and all the hottest releases from around the Pacific. Hi, I'm Ronnie Kareni from Sorong Samurai and you're listening to Island Music. My name is Tierney from Titanio Takara and you're listening to Island Music. Join me, Rick Howe, on Island Music. Saturdays, 12pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia and you're just coming up to the end of Pacific Beat for your Thursday morning. Uh, but just recapping our top story from today's show, we learned about the, the well, some of the horrors, the damage that the people of Guam might wake up to today after the powerful Typhoon Mawa, the Category 4 typhoon, laid waste to the island overnight. Ports including damage to several of our, our major hotels uh, inside and outside of the structures uh, the hospitals, two of our main hospitals, have uh, sustained some significant damage. The, the Guam International Airport, I'm seeing videos come through in several WhatsApp circles, um, flooding of the airport. So this is just the beginning. Just the beginning, indeed. Uh, that was uh, one of the authorities there in Guam looking after the warning and, and I guess the, the impending recovery that's to come there. Do stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia for all of the latest on Typhoon Mawa there. 
I'll be back same time tomorrow. You'll also have the PM version of Pacific Beat um, happening at 3 p.m. PNG time later today if you want to get the latest in all our stories. Otherwise, you can head to ABC Pacific Online. We have a website, we have Facebook, we have Twitter. We've got you covered. Stay tuned because news is next.